Please open your Bibles once again this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Remember that in our previous examination of the first three petitions of this prayer, that God's name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we were focusing primarily on the glory of God. And then we began to look at the last three petitions of the Lord's Prayer, which are focused on praying for our good, which, as it turns out, also redounds to the glory of God. <clears throat> and the first of these petitions here we examined last week, as you recall, and that was centered specifically upon our physical good. And this morning we're going to begin to examine the last two petitions, both of which are focused on our spiritual good. This one, the fifth petition, of course, is focused on the forgiveness of sins. I'd like to begin reading in verse 9, where the prayer begins and is introduced. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 15. And we're going to handle and look at verses 14 and 15 today because they seem to be an explanation or a partial explanation or in response to what Jesus told us to pray in verse 12. You'll see what I mean when we read it. In this manner, our Lord Jesus said, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And remember, that's the clue here that we're, we're talking about a daily prayer or a daily model prayer. And so that the things he's talking about in the prayer are things that he assumes we need to be reminded of every day or that we need every day, such as our daily bread or the meeting of our physical needs. And notice also, the plural, once again, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus wants us always to be whenever we're praying. We can pray for personal things for ourselves, but he never wants it to be far from our mind that we're part of a community that we're supposed to love as he loves and that we shouldn't care about our own needs and not care about theirs, right? So we're praying for our good, but at the same time for the good of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this continues with what he says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts. The assumption is that we're part of a community that daily needs forgiveness, which shouldn't surprise us then when we read the next line, as we forgive our debtors. We live amongst a community of people that need forgiveness from God every day, but not just from God every day, but from each other, perhaps on a, on a daily basis. And do not lead us into temptation, he goes on to say, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then he says, taking up the issue of forgiveness, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And notice he's putting trespasses in the place of debts. More on that in a moment. Let's take some time to pray, and then we'll see if we can't get a good handle on what Jesus' intention is when he teaches us to pray this way. Holy Father, we come before you this morning thankful for all that you've done for us, thankful that you created the universe, thankful that you, after the fall of man, provided your son Jesus to be their savior, and that you've saved each one of us here today who knows you, who's been forgiven by you, who's trusted in Christ, alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. 
as their Savior and Lord, as the one who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead, that we might have everlasting life, who ascended to your right hand, where he ever lives to intercede for us. We come gratefully before you, looking into his words and desirous that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might understand his intentions in the light of his other teachings and and the things that he inspired his apostles and taught his apostles to teach. Grant us wisdom in this endeavor, we pray. Work in our hearts conviction where we need it, encouragement where we need it. Teach us, we pray, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, our Lord Jesus reminded him that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was actually citing Deuteronomy 8.3 there. I think here in the Lord's Prayer, he also reminds us that man lives not only by daily bread alone, uh, but by daily forgiveness from God. As the 17th century Puritan theologian Thomas Watson put it, as soon as Christ had said, give us daily bread, he adds, and forgive us. He joins the petition of forgiveness of sin immediately to the other of daily bread to show us that though we have daily bread, yet all is nothing without forgiveness. If our sins be not pardoned, we can take but little comfort in our food. As a man that is condemned takes little comfort from the meat you bring him in prison without a pardon, so though we have daily bread, yet it will do us no good unless sin be forgiven. What though we should have manna, which is called angel's food. Though the rock should pour out rivers of oil, all is nothing unless sin be done away. When Christ had said, give us our daily bread, he presently added, and forgive us our trespasses. Daily bread may satisfy the appetite, but forgiveness of sin satisfies the conscience. Daily bread may make us live comfortably, but forgiveness of sins will make us die comfortably. D.A. Carson stressed the same idea in his commentary on this passage when he wrote this. The first three petitions stand independently from one another. The last three, however, are linked in Greek by ands. Now, he's not saying they stand independently in terms of thought from one another. He's speaking grammatically, right? When he says the first three petitions stand independently from one another, the last three, however, are linked in Greek by ands. Greek word chi, and. Almost as if to say that life sustained by food is not enough, we also need forgiveness of sin and deliverance from temptation. I think he's on the right track. In fact, this is what Pastor Brent pointed out last week when when he, right after I was finished talking about give us this day our daily bread, he talked about we need more than daily bread. We need forgiveness. We need redemption through Jesus Christ. We need a reminder of our salvation and so forth. He made the same point that these scholars are making, that Jesus was making, I think, in this prayer. So while keeping in mind then that daily forgiveness is just as important to our spiritual health as our daily bread is to our physical health, and keeping in mind that we're always praying this with a mindset of who's around us in the body of Christ and caring for them that they be forgiven, not just by God, but by us when we need to forgive them. Uh, We'll try to then look more closely at the way Jesus wants us to pray for this forgiveness. He says in verse 12, And forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. Now, a couple of questions came to my mind when I prepared this uh, and was reading this verse. And the first is, what are the debts Jesus says that need to be forgiven? What, what does the word debts mean here? How does it inform us? And secondly, in what sense are our debts forgiven as we forgive our debtors? What does that mean? Does this imply that we earn forgiveness by first forgiving others? Some people have taken it that way, and I'm going to argue, as you can probably say, see if you've looked ahead in your notes, I'm going to argue against that notion. But I'm going to attempt to answer these questions, beginning, of course, with the first one, because when you have two questions, it's good to start with the first one. What are the debts we need to have forgiven? Now, as most of us are no doubt already aware, the Bible can sometimes describe sins as debts and the forgiving of sins as the forgiveness of a debt. Um, It's obvious metaphorical language, right? And it was well understood by first century Jews, and this is why Jesus uses it in this passage and why also on another occasion when he taught his disciples to pray in a similar fashion, he could, instead of referring to debts, refer to sins. Because for him, these are interchangeable terms in this context, right? Debts are a metaphor for sin. So in Luke 11:4, that version of the prayer that I believe he taught on another occasion says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And there he mixes it, right? Sins and, being in, and forgiving debts and forgiving sins are the same thing. That's why he can do that. This metaphorical way of picturing sins as debts is also reflected in one of Jesus' better-known parables, the parable of the unforgiving servant, which I think will help us understand something more of Jesus' mindset when he teaches us to pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is found in Matthew 18. I'm going to read the whole parable, beginning with the immediate context. Matthew 18, verse 21 is where we start. Peter came up to our Lord Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77, or 70 times seven, excuse me. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's an astronomical sum, by the way. Uh, But as he was not able to pay, as one could imagine, many people with such astronomical debt can't pay it. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And actually, the word for forgave him, there is the exact same word that Jesus uses in this this prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer. We're told, though, that that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a relatively small sum in comparison to what he owed his master. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Sound familiar? It's what 
This guy had previously asked his master, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Now notice the order here. He didn't wait to see if this guy would go forgive the guy who owed him debt before he forgave him, the master. The master forgave him first and then expected that having been forgiven, he would be himself a forgiving person. That's important, the order there. Because I think Jesus hasn't forgotten that order when he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He says, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And then Jesus says, so my heavenly father also will do to each of you if from his heart he does not forgive his brothers his trespasses. There's an important principle in this parable that our forgiveness of others ought to flow out of our having been forgiven by God. And those who truly understand God's forgiveness, those who have received it and truly understand what that means, will be forgiving of others. That's the assumption. Having been forgiven by God, we're expected to be forgiving of others. And failing to do so reveals that we really haven't understood I think either the nature of our own sins, our own debt, and the forgiveness we've received in the first place. This is going to be important to remember, as I said, as we move forward in our study of this part of the Lord's Prayer. At any rate, we have seen that our Lord Jesus liked to use the metaphor of sin as a debt that needs to be forgiven. This led Thomas Watson, who I quoted earlier, the Puritan scholar. By the way, if you've never read much of the Puritans, if you read their work on a subject, you frequently put the book down and think, I don't think there's anything left to be said about that. They're, they're very thorough. <laughs> and, and you'll see, and I'm sharing some of his thoughts because he helped me a great deal. And by the way, he wrote a book. There's a book out on the Lord's Prayer, but it's actually taken from a larger body of divinity. When he wrote a theological text, he had a whole section on the Lord's Prayer. To him, that was part of basic theology. Maybe we could learn something from that, too. But anyway, Thomas Watson asked the question, why is sin called a debt? To which he offered, I think, a helpful answer. He says, because it fitly resembles it. One, he says, a debt arises upon non-payment of money or the not paying that which is one's due. We owe to God exact obedience and not paying what is due, we are in debt. Secondly, he says, in case of non-payment, the debtor goes to prison. So by our sin, we become guilty and are exposed to God's curse of damnation. Though he grants a sinner a reprieve for a time, yet he remains bound to eternal death if the debt not be forgiven. 
So God doesn't wipe out everybody automatically, or there'd be no people on the earth who deserve it, right? He gives us a reprieve for a time, our lifetime. But if we haven't received his forgiveness, our prison is damnation. He's right about that. He also goes on to ask the question, in what sense is sin the worst debt? To which he gives several answers that I think are worthy of consideration. As he pondered what Jesus said here, he helped me a lot. So maybe he'll help you too. In what sense is sin the worst debt? First, he says, because we have nothing to pay. If we could pay the debt, what need to pray, forgive us. Secondly, he said, says, sin is the worst debt because it is against an infinite majesty. Thirdly, he says, sin is the worst debt because it is not a single but a multiplied debt. Forgive us our debts, plural. We have debt upon debt. Fourth, he says, sin is the worst debt because it is an inexcusable debt in two respects. He gets very involved outlines. First, he says, there is no denying the debt. Isn't that the truth? Other debts men may deny. If the money be not paid before witnesses, or if the creditor loses the bond, the debtor may say he owes him nothing. But there is no denying the debt of sin. If we say we have no sin, God can prove the debt. And secondly, he says, there is no shifting off the debt. Other debts may be shifted off. We may get friends to pay them. But neither man nor angel can pay this debt for us. If all the angels in heaven should make a purse, they cannot pay one of our debts. In other debts, men may get a protection so that none can touch their persons or sue them for it. But who shall give us protection from God's justice? Of course, the answer he knows to that and that we all know to that is Jesus Christ alone has paid the debt on our behalf. In whom, Paul says in Colossians 1.14, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He did what no one else could do for us and what we could not do for ourselves when he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. So that's my thoughts on this debt language with some help from our departed brother, Thomas Watson. Had he lived longer, I would hope that he would have become a Baptist, but you can see he's very, very good doctrinally on this point. This leads us to our second question. In what sense are debts forgiven as we forgive our debtors? What does that mean? At first glance, one might be tempted to think, as some have thought, sadly, that Jesus is teaching that we can somehow merit forgiveness from God through our forgiveness of other people. To the degree that we forgive others, that's the degree that he will forgive us. If we want him to forgive us, we have to first forgive other people. Remember, that's not the assumption Jesus made when he taught about that in the parable of the unforgiving servant. He made the opposite assumption. And, but some people mistake this and think we merit forgiveness through our forgiveness of others, especially given Jesus' explanation of this petition, which they also misunderstand, I think, that follows the prayer in verses 14 and 15, 
where Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So we need to pause here and consider, does Jesus really intend to say that we merit God's forgiveness through our forgiveness of other people? And the us here would seem to be our brothers and sisters in Christ in particular. When he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But we could extend it to forgive anyone who sins against us, right? I think there are four considerations that clearly militate against this misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching here. First, I would argue that the form of request that the petition for forgiveness takes rules out merit so that our forgiveness of others cannot be the cause of God's forgiveness of us. When Jesus tells us to ask the Father to forgive us our debts, he's using the Greek word aphiemi, is the word that's regularly used for forgiveness by Jesus, which means to remit a debt, and then also to forgive a sin then. As in the same way someone might remit a debt. But to remit a debt is to show grace. Isn't it? It's not that it's deserved. What the person deserves is to have to pay you back or suffer the consequences. But to remit a debt is to show grace. No payment is required. If God were dealing with us in accordance with works of righteousness, he would demand payment of the debt from us. So I don't think Jesus can be saying that God will cancel our debt while at the same time saying that we must pay for it bit by bit. Can't mean that. God, uh, remit our debt if we pay it bit by bit by forgiving other people. It doesn't work that way. Jesus can't possibly mean that, especially giving other things that we've seen that he taught. He can't possibly mean that. But he has to mean something. (laughs) Right, and So we're going to try and figure out what, what he means as we move along here. <clears throat> I would just argue that reading the text the way some take it uh, is involving merit uh, is absurd and runs counter to the request itself, but also the consistent teaching of Scripture, either Jesus' teaching or the Apostles' teaching or Old Testament authors' teaching, wherever you want to read in the Bible, elsewhere, that salvation is by grace rather than works. And that our relationship with God is dependent upon grace rather than works. Throughout. That's the first thing. I I just think it's a nonsensical way to read the actual statement. But secondly, we must distinguish between the initial forgiveness of our sins when we are justified and the ongoing need for confession and forgiveness in our daily lives as we are sanctified. Notice in this regard that Jesus clearly intends this prayer for those who are already believers and thus are already justified by God's grace and forgiven of their sins. They're not asking to be saved initially. They're already saved. And they're encountering daily sin and asking daily for its forgiveness. And we know this because he's teaching his disciples 
to pray and is inviting us to pray as believers to God as our Father. That means we already have a relationship of salvation with him. And he's talking to his disciples primarily about whom he knows that, save one, Judas, right? Uh, Notice also that Jesus clearly intends this as I've said, to be an ongoing daily prayer for forgiveness, which means that he, de- he has to have our daily sanctification in mind. Now, the difference, most of you will know, if you've because you've been in our church for a while, justification when we're saved, right, and that can also be called initial sanctification, is when we're saved, God declares us righteous in his eyes because of the happy exchange, as Martin Luther would put it. Christ took all our sins on himself on the cross and took the punishment for them. And his righteousness was credited to us as our own. And based on that imputed or credited righteousness to us, to our account, we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's justification. And we're forgiven of our sins. We have new life in Christ. We are saved. But the Bible also describes an ongoing process of sanctification by which we are slowly made more and more to be what God has declared us to be in Christ, righteous. And we don't achieve perfection in, in this life and that. Paul calls that glorification, and that awaits the future resurrection. But in the meantime, we're going through this process of sanctification in which, although we've been forgiven of our sins initially, we are going to continue to battle with sin. That's the assumption Jesus makes in teaching us to pray daily, forgive us our sins, that every day we're going to battle sin and fail in one way or another and need forgiveness. And that those around us are going to have the same problem. And they're not only going to need forgiveness from God, but forgiveness from us. And that this is part of the sanctification process. Trusting God more and more for forgiveness and forgiving others is part of life as a Christian. This is what Jesus is presupposing here. He doesn't then intend to this clearly in the context to be a once-for-all prayer for salvation and receiving of initial forgiveness, which has already happened for believers who have trusted him for salvation and received justification through his saving work. Remember how the Apostle Paul teaches that we're justified by grace in this respect in Romans 3, 21 through 24, where we read, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this implies what Paul makes explicit later in his discussion of justification in chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, which I've already described to you, this, this idea of imputation or the reckoning of our sins to Christ, but righteousness being reckoned to us because our sins haven't been reckoned to us. In uh, Romans 5, uh, 4, 5 through 8, we read, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, in the context, it's the righteousness of God through Christ that's imputed or reckoned to us as our own that he has in mind here. But notice, David put it negatively in Psalm 32. 
when he wrote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And in the Septuagint, that's the same word that Jesus is using here, if it me. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Well, if our sins aren't reckoned to us, Paul is assuming, righteousness must be. Because, you know, he believed in the law of non-contradiction. As a matter of fact, Paul actually spoke in another epistle of our initial forgiveness in Christ as the cancellation of a debt. He says this in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out, blotted out or erased, the handwriting of requirements. The, the Greek here means record of debt, more literally. That was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I mentioned what I think the Greek more literally means there. I think the ESV does a better job of bringing that out. It translates the verses this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, referring to Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He's just likening forgiveness to the cancellation of a debt as our Lord Jesus did. He's speaking figuratively. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. At any rate, our Lord Jesus did not have this justification and initial forgiveness in mind when he taught his disciples to pray daily for God's forgiveness. We don't have to be justified once again every day. What Paul's describing and what Jesus taught is that justification is a once-for-all thing. In fact, in, in Romans 2, Paul can actually refer to justification in a future sense. Here's the point. When, it, when is the final judgment take place? Not yet. That awaits the future. But we know the verdict now. Righteous. It's a done deal. You don't have to do this over and over again. But what is an ongoing thing is sanctification becoming more and more what we will ultimately be in the future glorification and what God has declared us to be. With certainty, this is going to happen. In the meantime, we're striving for it in this life through a process of sanctification, which requires lots of testing and suffering and trials, among other things. So Jesus has to have in mind here the need for ongoing forgiveness in the life of every believer as he or she daily battles against sin. The Apostle John had the same thing in mind when he wrote this in his first epistle. John, or first John, excuse me, 1 verse 8 through chapter 2 verse 1. He wrote this. Now, remember, John is writing to believers when he says this. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Show me a believer who says they have no sin at all, and I'll show you someone that's self-deceived. Kidding himself or herself. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, doubly making this point, we make him a liar. Now think about it. If Jesus teaches us that we need to pray every day for forgiveness of sins, but we claim we don't sin every day, we're making him a liar. That's what this amounts to, right? Applying it to our passage. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Ooh, that stings. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. My hope in writing this to you is so that you'll strive not to sin. Not so that you'll just accept that you sin and not care about it, right? I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that when I tell you to own up to the fact that you've got sin every day, that you need to confess. I want you to keep battling and trying to overcome sin. So he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, and, it, and if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's important. Because he's the only perfectly righteous human being, and he's our great high priest who stands at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us. He's our advocate And God always listens to him when he pleads for our forgiveness. If we feel like, oh, I don't don't even think my prayers for, for forgiveness are good enough. We're falling into works mentality again. I have to pray it the right way or God won't forgive me. No, 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 no. Jesus is pleading for us. He makes everything all right. Grace upon grace upon grace, God shows us. Isn't it magnificent? That's the second thing. It has to do with our sanctification, this prayer. Third, I think we need to distinguish between our forgiveness of others as the cause of God's forgiveness of us versus our forgiveness of others as the evidence of our having been forgiven by God. That is, we must think of a forgiving heart as the evidence that we have been truly forgiven ourselves. In this sense, it's one of those works that is the fruit of genuine saving faith. There's a principle about this that uh, our departed brother, the Apostle James, wrote in James 2, verses 14 through 17, when he said, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And what he's talking about, someone who claims to have faith but shows no change in their life whatsoever, that one would expect of someone who has faith in God for salvation, that person's lying. (laughs) That's not what saving faith looks like. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, he says, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. As many Reformed theologians have correctly asserted over the centuries, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by grace through faith alone, apart from works. But the faith that saves is never alone. It always produces works. And that's what James was talking about. If you claim to have genuine saving faith, I ought to be able to tell it by how you live. 
And one of those things would be forgiveness. He doesn't mention that there in that particular, those particular verses, but we could fill in any part of the Christian life. Genuine saving faith always results in a changed life that produces fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist would put it. And one of those fruits will always be a forgiving heart. Jesus assumed that in his parable of the unforgiving servant, for example. I think he's assuming it here in the Lord's Prayer. And we'll see it assumed elsewhere. Here's the fourth thing that we need to do. We need to distinguish between deserts and capacity. Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness of sins is the just deserts of our having forgiven others, but I think he might be implying that our forgiveness of others affects our capacity to receive God's forgiveness. To have assurance of his forgiveness, perhaps. If you show me a genuine believer who's carrying a grudge and is unforgiving toward others, and I'll almost certainly show you someone who has doubts about his salvation, worries that he's been forgiven by God, even though he has. I think Jesus might be assuming that problem. I think this is consistent with the teaching of the rest of Scripture, this assumption. For example, in Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. This is a believer writing this. Peter could say to husbands, to give another example that comes to mind, that if you don't love your wives like you should, right, God will not hear your prayers. He doesn't say, but you're not truly saved then. He says it's an impediment to your relationship with God. Well, so is refusing to forgive other people. It's an impediment to your relationship with God. So when Jesus teaches us to pray daily, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he's also giving us a daily reminder that we need to confess our sins to God, to be forgiven by him. He's giving us a daily reminder that our relationship with others always in some way affects our relationship with God on a daily basis. Notice the plural pronouns throughout this prayer again. You cannot love Jesus and not love his bride, the church. The harm you do to the church through refusing to forgive, you're doing to Jesus. Remember what he said to Paul on the road to Damascus? Why do you persecute me? He thought he was persecuting the church. He was. And in doing so, he was persecuting Christ. Because they are one with him. And Jesus is assuming this in this prayer. There's no way our relationship with God can't be affected by the way we treat those around us. Because they're one with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how we treat them is how we treat him. So Jesus is recognizing that our relationship and our fellowship with God can be hindered and we won't experience his forgiveness as fully as we ought and the assurance of it as fully as we ought if we aren't experiencing grace toward others. 
People that have a hard time showing gross to other people, surprise, surprise, they have a hard time understanding God can be gracious to them. But as we see a forgiving spirit within ourselves, we're going to be more and more assured of God's forgiveness. I mean, think about this. If God can enable me, by nature an unforgiving person, you know, I grew up carrying grudges. I was an angry person when the Lord saved me. I was angry at the whole world. Did I have a grudge against one person? No, I had a grudge against everybody. Right? And if God can make me a forgiving person, surely he can, he can forgive me. If, if by his grace I can pull off forgiveness, I know he can, right? If he's the one enabling me to do that, you see the point here? If, if we're forgiving other people, it just leads to assurance that, yeah, God's forgiving me. I'll conclude simply by repeating an admonition from the Apostle Paul, which I think is apropos here this morning. That's a fancy word. And I hope we'll see this, I hope we'll see this verse in a new light after all of our considerations. And this is from Ephesians 4.32 where Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. What, what that unforgiving servant was supposed to be like in the parable, but wasn't. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That was the point of Jesus' parable right there. When you struggle to forgive other people, stop and think what God has forgiven you. And it becomes a lot easier. If you know your own sin and how much God has forgiven you, it becomes a lot easier to forgive other people. On the other hand, if you're struggling to forgive other people, you've lost sight of what God's done for you. And that's why Paul says what he says forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. You keep that in mind always, and you're on the right track. And I think that's the kind of thing Jesus wants us to do when we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's my hope that having gotten into all this depth and looked all over Scripture, I've, I've put Jesus' words in their proper context so that we don't misunderstand what he's saying. He just wants us to see the link between our relationship with other people and our relationship with God and how those affect one another. And Lord, I pray that we will go away from here today with these words resounding in our ears, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Help us not to lose sight of that, I pray. And I just want to thank you before I'm done praying that I see so much forgiveness at Emmanuel Baptist Church. What I see before me are forgiving people. I've experienced their forgiveness. I feel like they have to forgive me every Sunday. Lord, I just thank you for such a loving group of people. There's evidence that your spirit is at work here in these people. 
I do see forgiveness. I do see people who know what it means to be forgiven by you. But our Lord Jesus knows there'll be daily temptations to forget that. And we're so thankful he's built into our prayer life a reminder, an important reminder, that none of us this side of the resurrection will reach perfection and will need grace every day. And we'll need to show it to other people, other believers every day. Help us to just continue to be a body that does that. So that when other people come in here, they experience that love, that tenderheartedness. They see it and they know it can only come from you. Help us to be good witnesses this way, I pray, always. And if there's anyone here today who has not received your forgiveness, has not come to faith in Christ, we just pray that you would do for him or her what you've done for the rest of us. Open their eyes, Lord, to the fact that they're a sinner who needs forgiveness and that they can only have it as a free gift through Jesus Christ by your grace. And help them to just trust in him. And we'll give you all the glory, for you alone deserve it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you once again for your kind attention.